Hi everyone, welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. My name is Ton Dobbe and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration and the author of The Remarkable Effect. I envision a world where every B2B SaaS startup succeeds because they're creating software that customers would miss if they were gone. And here's why. Research consistently shows that 90% of all startups fail, and that's bad. What's worse, however, is that 75% of SaaS scale-ups fail, companies that are supposed to have product market fit. Far too few scale-ups create the traction they aspire for and fail for the wrong reasons. And I believe this should stop, and hence I created my business. And the goal that I have with this podcast is twofold. First, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. Secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what it requires to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The guest on my podcast today is Lydia Vega, co-founder and CEO of Decklinks. Because this is how buyers think first, they make a decision about you as a salesperson. And then they make the decision about the company, the offering, the value prop, everything else is after. But the first thing, the first 10 seconds is whether they like you, whether they trust you, whether they want to work with you. This is the first three things that they answer in their head in the first 10 seconds as they see you as a salesperson. This is Lydia. She started her career in the ad tech space where she gained sales experiences with both Pix Future and Stack Adopt. In 2018, she co-founded BriefBit, a two-sided marketplace where media teams can connect, plan, and work together. The insights that she's got there sparked the idea behind her new company. And today, Lydia is the co-founder and CEO of Techlinks, a platform that empowers B2B sales teams to create the most personal buying experiences with video sales decks. Techlinks is on a mission to make B2B sales more human. Building a world where sales professionals can show their expertise and personality to create a deeper connection with the buyers at any stage of the sales cycle. And that inspired me, and hence I invited Lydia to my podcast. We explore what's broken in the world of B2B sales when it comes to how we communicate. Lydia shares her vision of how companies can grow faster by making sales more human. She talks us through the big lessons that she learned in her previous startup and how the unique insights that she gained firsthand gave her and her team a formula for success. Last but not least, she shares her advice on what it takes to build a SaaS business that's ultra lean, remarkable, and able to compete with the big boys. And by listening to this podcast, you will learn four things. Firstly, why deciding to automating everything can be the biggest mistake you ever made. Secondly, how to win against competitors that have the biggest brand, the best product, and the best price. Thirdly, why the number of customers that refuse to take your discount should be a key metric on your dashboard. And fourthly, why designing for creating an organic network effect should be your biggest priority. Well, hi, Lydia. Thank you for making your time available today and being the guest of the podcast. Hi, Tom. Thanks so much for inviting me. I know we wanted to do this for a long time. Exactly. Not sure how we met. Maybe was it Lunch Club? Possibly, yes. And that was the time where I released my first MVP. And yeah, I believe exactly. you signed up. <laughs> I was so happy that you signed up because I looked up what you're doing. It felt good that people from, you know, B2B industry who interview a lot of founders and CEOs, they signed up for my product. It was a good day <laughs> that day. <laughs> okay, that's good to hear that. 
Well, I mean, now that we are at least half a year, I think, beyond that, you got your product released to the market and you, you got customers going on. This was maybe the good time to talk about the big idea behind it. But before we start, and you've listened to a couple of my podcasts before, if you would have to describe yourself, characterize yourself as an entrepreneur, what words come up? I was actually thinking about how other people would describe me. And I know my co-founders, they describe me as somebody who is very hopeful and optimistic. So hopeful. that's... Yes, hopeful and optimistic. I see really good things, even in the most negative things. I try to take any bad situation and somehow convert it into a good thing. So that's how they describe me, optimistic. But also, I heard that people say I'm a very creative thinker, and I value relationship a lot. So that's something that my co-founders also tell me that, you know, you're building relationship, Lydia, and keep building those relationships. And it really works out for myself, for my co-founders, for the co yeah, I can completely see that. And from how long I've been working with you or communicating with you, that is definitely coming through. So I actually, yeah, I agree with what I see. These are good things. You know, hopeful is always a very good trait, I would say, to have as the CEO because it's about the future and creating something to create a better future. Maybe that's a good bridge to the company that you founded. Normally I ask, what's the big idea behind this? Maybe I should ask a different one right now. Like, what's the revolution you try to create? Well, since you're watching my post, you probably came across that some of the videos that we're creating, pretty vocal about this. We are creating a world where we're making B2B sales more human. We believe that there's a lot of automations happening and the buying journey is very complex. And the way the sales and the sales teams is just, for them, the world is faceless. And the way buyers make decisions, we believe they make decisions with emotions they want to know who the salesperson is. They want to know the energy. So we are creating a world where salespeople can be themselves. They can get in front of the buyer without booking a meeting with the buyer. So this is where the product comes in. This is why we created video sales decks. So instead of sending a lot of cadences and automations and a lot of all of text and PDFs, they can create a video sales deck and send this to the buyer, get in front of them, connect, have the deeper connection and let the buyer experience it on their own pace. So you create the most personal experience, but buyer can experience it at their own pace, at their own time. That's the world where we're creating. Nice. I think you hit a very important topic because I completely recognize that from my history in B2B sales. It is about humans to humans, but the kind of the whole process is almost like kicking that whole human aspect out of it because of all kinds of rules and regulations and processes and tenders. And so I like that you're bringing that back again. I could be very optimistic. And again, I'm very hopeful. <laughs> I just, I feel like we want to create the world that buyers ask salespeople for a duckling because when they know that a salesperson create, sends a duckling, the buyers will get the most personal experience. So this is kind of like what the goal is. Again, I'm being very hopeful, but I hope we will create that world one day. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's what you stand for. Eventually, you know, iteration after iteration, it will get closer and closer. And possibly at some point, it will become a thing like, like you Google things. So, yeah, yeah, that's the goal. So <laughs> I love it. I love it how you think big there. So what do you believe is the opportunity if we get this right? If the world of B2B sales has become more human, what does it result into? If the world becomes more human, salespeople will be able to, and we believe, close more deals just simply by being themselves. And that will help a lot of companies grow faster because we know that sales and the 
tells the heartbeat of every company out there. So if we can enhance the talent and give them the best tool to show that talent so they can leverage it and buyers, obviously they're going to make more deals and close more deals. And that's going to be good for everyone. And the companies will grow much faster. It's going through, it's an unusual time, difficult time for a lot of companies out there right now. And we want to help them grow and not just stay afloat and survive. We want them to. I mean, I see on your website, you kind of you have a deeper connection earlier and then you accelerate sales. Possibly, I think the word relationship that you brought up for yourself in the beginning is also going to be an aspect of this because that relationship that you feel you're working with with a human in a positive way helps to kind of start that well on the right foot from the beginning. Yes, yes, that's exactly what it is. So and what we're interesting, what we see right now with the customers that are using your deck links, they send sales deck and presentation ahead of time. Obviously, they don't wait for the meeting. They're just like, this is what we do. At the same time, they're in a video narrated. So the buyers can feel the energy, understand whether they like the seller or they can trust if the seller has the expertise because this is how buyer thinks. First, they make a decision about you as a salesperson. And then they make the decision about the company, the offering, the value prop. Everything else is after. But the first thing, the first 10 seconds is whether they like you, whether they trust you, whether yeah. they want to work with you. This is the first three things that they answer in your head in the first 10 seconds as they see you as a salesperson. So what we're trying to do is get salespeople in front of the buyers earlier in the sales pipeline. That's exactly what we say on the website. And I hope it's clear enough. And what the magic we're creating is that when they send the presentation and when they hope on the call, they don't need to go through the slides anymore. That allows them to have a more natural conversation with the buyer. They have more time for discovery and they have more time to understand the buyer's needs. So that's, exactly. that's all yeah. yeah, That's definitely an important one because in the discovery, it's about listening and about yeah. asking the right questions rather than pitching. And yeah, interesting. It's sort of kind of bringing the beginning or bringing the halfway to the beginning that yes. started in a better way. Perfect. How did you get, you know, where did you see this problem? What was the aha moment where you said, okay, this is such a big problem in the market. I'm going to do something about it. So before Decklings, we were running a marketplace called BriefBit. So, and that was, and still operational. So for three and a half years, we've been processing sales decks and proposals from 500 companies. And we were analyzing sales decks and PDFs presentations, PowerPoints, and trying to understand what makes a sales deck win versus other sales decks. What helps, you know, win more RFPs, win more deals, essentially. So we're trying to predict win rate ahead of time based on the engagement that we were tracking from the sales deck. So it was really hard to track a PDF, right? So we could have tracked only a few things, whether they opened an email, right? Or they opened a specific, you know, they read the message because we had the messenger in our procurement platform in the marketplace. A little bit of background about the marketplace. So the marketplace that we run is connecting buyers and sellers. So buyers were submitting a request for a proposal. And then sellers were the media companies. They're sending their sales decks, proposals, and media kits. Based on the interaction with their material, we could predict a win rate and better match, but also based on the RFP requirements, that's how we were matching the vendors, the sales uh, reps. We were over-automating things. <laughs> this is what I'm going to say. And that was one of the biggest mistakes because we thought that if we create an objective tool for buyers to vet vendors 
It's going to help them make better decisions. What we're missing is, is the human factor, which we realized later because we were matching and over-automating and connecting buyers and sellers. Imagine like a big ad tech matchmaking tool. <laughs> and then we're trying to understand, well, that there are so many companies that sending back best prices, best offering, best product, but losing. We can understand why. Uh-huh. They, were, they keep losing the business. And they were losing business to those who were providing a better and more personal buying experience. Those teams who can provide a more personal experience had closing rates. And that was the aha moment for us. Nice. Okay. And from there, you decided, okay, this requires a different business altogether. For that, yes. So we had to pivot, but we took the analytical part of BriefBit, whatever we created. We took some of the you know, UI and we repackaged it. We created a single player mode that you as a salesperson can use and create a video sales deck outside of our marketplace. You can use it for your own clients, for your own prospects. So we extract a few components of our marketplace, repackaged it and created deck links. Okay, gotcha. That's now become the main thing. Now <clears throat> it became a standalone company, a standalone product, a standalone company. And this is something we can scale. Briefbit was hard to monetize. It was really hard to scale, but we see that Declink is a completely different, it's a pure SaaS play, it's one player single mode. You see, the marketplace are really tough because you have to rely on parties to align to make a transaction happen. You need to make the supply and demand happy. Yeah. And this is the most challenging thing. Everyone talks about the chicken and the problem. Well, they talk about it for a reason. It's yeah. a challenging thing to make both sides happy. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But why? Yeah, well, of course, the real thing within those two-sided marketplaces is once you get the traction, it also sort of becomes unstoppable because when there is yes. enough of the one and the other, enough of the other, like for example, you've seen that with Airbnb. And, yes. Yeah. Yes, and the reason. But to why get to it, I, I understand. Yeah, it's it's super hard. Yeah, and it's also one of the biggest factors that plays in the success of marketplaces. You have to tap into the transactions. If you just match and vet and provide a tool to connect. That's not enough. You need to tap into the flow of the transactions. So when the transaction happens, you need to take cut. You need to integrate. And this is, was one of the interesting things about Rebit is because all those media companies, they had their own platforms when they invoice vendors. They didn't want to integrate or switch to another provider or tap their financials through a billing department through us because they work with legacy companies that they sign up the whole teams, the whole holdings. So if you can't really tap into the transactions flow, that's a big red sign for marketplaces. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. All right. So yeah, you decided to kind of you know, to build a product. And when we met, we, you had your MVP. You've evolved it in the meantime. So what have you learned in that process? Well, what has been some of the fundamental decisions that you've made that have been very important for you for where you are right now? I think the biggest decision we made, we built something upon the inside that their first hand. So Decklinks was a creation based on something we learned in our previous startup. There is a lot of opportunities out there. There's a lot of problems to be solved in the world. Everyone talks about the problems and there are a lot of great startups trying to you know, create solutions. What we learn is the magic happens is when you build something besides that you learn yourself firsthand. It's not something that you read on news or on TechCrunch because if it's on TechCrunch, the more that means about this problem, everyone knows about the insight. 
what do you know that no one else knows? And I think Decklings is becoming successful because we build it based on all the sales materials and the decks and the way we processed, you know, previously, all those, we learned so much about different ways on how sales decks are being created, what actually wins, what works. We learned it firsthand. We didn't read about it. We experienced it ourselves. So I think the biggest thing we learn is building something up that we learned firsthand, not because somebody told us to read an article. We were like, oh, there's a big problem. Let's create a solution. Well, if you read this, you know, again, everyone knows about this problem. <laughs> the chances that solutions are going to be different. I mean, the chances of the solution that you're creating is going to be very similar. What's going to set you apart if you create something based on your science? That's what I believe. Interesting. I mean, it reminds me actually of a podcast that I recently listened to from Mike Maples, the host of the podcast Starting Greatness. He was also having an interview with, I'm not sure who it was anymore, but it was about that a great company is built on great insights and actually great insights that no one else has and can have. And that gives you a competitive advantage ahead of the marketplace. So that's smart. Yeah. So in the short time that you started building Decklinks based on the insights that you gained from BriefBit, those insights appear to be very important to get it to the next level. What has been the hardest nut to crack for you in that process to accelerate and to actually take it from idea to a product? Are you talking about specifically about Decklinks? or yeah, the- Decklinks. Okay. It was difficult for us to pitch Decklinks to our existing clients at BriefBit that were using our marketplace previously. We had an assumption that because they use BriefBit and their existing customers, and we work with some big, big brands and still working with big brands that are submitting proposals through BriefBit, we thought that Decklink is something that they will be able to use outside of BriefBit. But it was so hard for us to position us as a different company because they saw us as a marketplace for our fees where we give them net new business. And then when we came back to them and say, oh, we have this really cool tool that will help you increase your win rate because we build it upon all the insights, upon all the winning proposals, you can use it outside of our marketplace. You can use it with your prospects and clients outside of BriefBit. It was really hard for us to change our perception about our company because everyone thought of us as we bring business. We give them new net business already ready. Here's the client. They're submitting an RFP. I send them a proposal. And now we're telling them, here's the tool that's going to help you. You see, it works with a lot of companies that have not used BriefBit, a lot of companies outside of media, be industry agnostic, because when we have a certain brand, everyone knows what we stand for. But when everyone knew that we are the marketplace for our fees, and all of a sudden we're like, oh no, this is not for, we're not bringing you new business. We are giving you the tools so you can get more business. That was a bit challenging, a shift for us. We had to Uh go through, and I'll be completely honest, you know, that was a bit of a shock because, you know, we built something upon all sides and we could easily get companies to use Decklinks but not our existing BriefBit customers because they already had a perception about who we are as a company. And it's really hard. Once you said that in the industry, once you define your positioning in the industry, it's really, really hard to change that. Yeah. So what did you do? So we focused on different customer segments 
So we basically provide our tool to sales teams in specifically in B2B tech. So B2B software, sales tech, not just uh, media, media industry. Media industry is very, they have different ways of doing things. And we know yeah. that. And we just open up to different verticals. We found very good success with, you know, tech sales, those who, who sell softwares. We found success with charities. Charities do fundraising all the time. They needed a personal tool to send video presentations to fundraise money, right, for their charitable causes. So we open up our tool to to verticals outside of medium. And that's how we became vertical agnostic, basically. Yeah. Well, vertical agnostic is one thing, of course. That means you're horizontal. And you said that, that in a number of verticals, you get more traction or you get more... Yeah, you solve maybe a pain that's bigger than in other verticals. Yeah, how do you prevent from not going to be too broad? I mean, have you found your optimum yet? We have our ICP. Obviously, we know who our ideal client is. And we are, again, we use our tool to prospect ourselves. We use our tool to sell our tool. We send deck links about a deck link. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty meta, I know. <laughs> we do this. Fantastic. Yes, we, we do this and we prospect specific segments, specific industries. But we can't prevent if somebody from outside of ICP wants to use it for internal communication. For example, we have a few insurance companies that sign up and they're using it for internal communications. It's fantastic. It's amazing. And obviously, we're very happy to have those clients. We don't prospect specifically insurance clients, but we have those clients that come as inbounds. Again, we can't prevent certain industries from not using our product because we would love them to leverage our product and help yeah. them communicate internally and externally, right? So they can do it internally with their team and they can do it externally with their prospects and clients, right? Or partners. And yeah. we have some companies that use Decklinks for onboarding. There's, there's a very broad use cases, but we try to focus on our ICPs, tech sales, our B2B software companies, and this is who we approach. Let me make a small interruption here. Lydia just made an excellent remark about how they're able to gain traction by making deliberate choices and honing in on a niche where they can make the biggest difference and hence create fans. It's a trait that remarkable software companies master. They understand that they cannot please everyone. They create something valuable and desirable and then build strong momentum on the back of that. And you can master these traits as well. The first step, Simply read my book. I've made the electronic version available for free. Just visit theremarkableeffect.com to grab your copy and inspiration will spark within the first 10 minutes. Back to the interview. I mean, first of all, kudos for the fact that you build a product that is actually, once you use it, it's a shining example of what can be for your ideal customer, you know? So you can go mm -hmm. wild on using your own product to just create more demands for it and, and wow people. Is that what you see is happening? Yes, we call it organic network effect. A lot of users, um, us, we have a freemium model. So as you know, once you have a freemium model, you lower the barrier. There's a lot of yeah. users who use freemium models that puts our branding, our Ducklings branding in front of all their recipients. Ah. And we're able to track how many recipients actually sign up from looking at someone else's deck. So organic network scores is very high and we see that a lot of people sign up because they saw somebody using Deckling, which is great. Yep. There's a lot of word of us, but there's a lot of, I like the example. I like what you see and I want to use it too. Yeah, I mean, in my book, I'm talking about, you know, you create something valuable and desirable and this is where the desire kicks in. 
that creates momentum. So you got a viral effect going. Yes. So this is something we're really proud of because as a startup in the beginning, you don't have a lot of money for advertising and you need to rely on an organic network effect. If you have that, it's a good sign. It's absolutely a good sign indeed. I've had a couple of people on my podcast that also had yeah, almost a viral effect of one, I guess. But yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, this is the reason why I wrote my book, The Remarkable Effect, because if something is worth making a remark about and people start talking about it, you cannot grow faster and leaner than that because it's indeed also about being lean and yeah, getting that traction before or without having to, having to spend tons of money on marketing power. Yeah. So what, what, what appears to be the catalyst for the breakthrough? Just wanted to add something really interesting. I know I come from marketing background and I believe in advertising, but I've been listening to a few people who said that advertising and dollars that the budgets is the tax that the company pay when they don't have anything remarkable. So that's uh, something that exactly. was stuck in my head. And I was like, this is so interesting because this is what a lot of startups have to adopt. They need to find scrappy ways of how to get users on a scale, right? Without advertising dollars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love the point there. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, going to, <laughs> I see a blog coming up already. <laughs> Because it's so true, you know, the larger the marketing budgets, the more they have to kind of throw at it to keep that inflow going. Yeah, almost the weaker the product normally is. It can also be the opposite around, but it's normally it is a sign of that. Very interesting. Talking about when did you start to see that the product was gaining the traction? What was the catalyst moment where it suddenly took off? Is there any moment like that? Well, there was a few moments when we realized we have a market fit. It was interesting because a lot of people say, well, you have to do a survey based on the answers. You can figure out what your market fit is. There's this, you know, very, very common exercise by a founder who created a superhuman. He said, just send a survey to everyone and ask them if they're going to be disappointed (laughs) if your tool is going to go away tomorrow. And if 40% answers... Yes, yes. If the 400% answer is very disappointed, then you have your market fit. Yeah. So I have a different approach, so, which is also interesting how I came across it. If you start giving discounts to people and they refuse and they say, no, I'll pay the full price. That's where you know you have a market fit. Uh-huh. <laughs> I know it's, it's not a traditional way, but there was a couple of times when I wanted to give discounts and discounts were refused. And they're like, no, we want to pay the full subscription. That was really interesting. I'm like, I never expected this, right? And that tells a lot about the product and the value they're getting of the product, right? If they don't want to leverage a discount and they want to pay full price, right? Because in the beginning, it's really hard to know if you have a market fit or not, because what a lot of founders do in the product teams, we get our users on the call with us and we try to ask them as many questions to validate something we have created, Yeah. right? But it doesn't mean that, you have your market product fit. When you have people paying the full price and refusing discounts and not churning, that's where you have the market fit. I believe this is when they are saying, take my money. This is the market fit. When the users tell you that. And this is where you know they have the market. And this is what I realized. It was a big difference between our previous startup and this startup. Very interesting. And I mean, I completely agree with it. I mean, actually, it's one of the questions in the assessment I have in my book. Chapter Mm -hmm. number one, you know, remarkable software companies realize they cannot please everybody and 
And I think the first or the second question in the assessment is, what is your ability to attract an audience that's prepared to pay a premium? If that's a no or if that's a low, yeah, you know, your segmentation is far off and you have to go like, yeah, dig it in because there's going to be a group that is absolutely going to pay a premium for you if the product is right, by the way. Not everybody always. Very interesting. I like your analogy on there and also the twist on the one that the CEO from Superhuman is actually using. By the way, I'm using Superhuman. I would scream if they would take it away from me. And I would, <laughs> I would, I'm super happy to pay the premium for it as well. They have the market fit for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So it proves again how right it is. And I've never actually paid for email clients. And now I'm paying, I think, three times more than for the whole Google suite for it. And I'm happy for it. It proves again. Maybe some inspiration for people that are listening to the podcast to do that test themselves. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Yeah, going into the traction bit, I mean, you made a point about the brief bit. It's a two-sided marketplace and it was hard to scale. Decklinks, easy to scale, pure SaaS. What have you been doing in the meantime to create leverage across that? How do you go about creating leverage with your company? You'll have to help you with this question <laughs> in terms of leverage. Exactly? Well, I mean, at the end, it's you can create leverage from a technology perspective that is super scalable wow. and we can, we can start to create kind of treat more or serve more people. But on the other end, you can also, mm-hmm. and that's something that I see a lot of companies forget or yeah, don't maximize out. You can also create leverage on the business side which is, for example, and I think you already highlighted one aspect of that, creating a product that has virality. That's where you create leverage. It can also be that you go for a product-led growth type strategy whereby you make something that is high-touch, low-touch. I mean, are there any mm-hmm. examples of that you're doing that you can stay lean as a company while still grow yeah, the multiple X? Yes, absolutely. So because we're mixed, actually, so we're product-led growth, but with a sales assist, it's just, in our nature, we cannot be fully product-led growth because we're a sales enablement tool. We actually believe in what we sell and we also building a sales team. So it's a mix of PLG and sales assist, I would say this much. But to stay lean, we are actually in the process of building native integrations. And I'll be announcing those very soon where we're going to actually be integrated with biggest CRMs out there and putting our native apps on the market, on their marketplaces, which is going to drive user growth. We believe that's a really good user acquisition channel for us to be on those marketplaces. Nice. And in this whole process of further scaling the business and yeah, kind of working with the traction that you are creating, what has been a real big obstacle that you had to overcome and how did you do so? The biggest obstacle for us We're a very small team and sometimes Mm -hmm. it's impossible and sometimes people don't believe that we're able to accomplish and build the tech with just 
a few software engineers, you'll be surprised how many times I send a pitch deck or a sales deck within Decklinks, and they couldn't yeah. believe that Decklinks was actually our product. Okay. So the main challenge was being a small team and proving everyone that you can compete with mature softwares on the same level. It was, it's always a big challenge for a lot of startups because you don't have the recognition. Obviously, you don't have the name like a lot of different, more mature companies. How do you get yourself in front of the buyers? That's one challenge. But also, how do you prove that you're worthy? Because so many other companies have bigger teams, right? Bigger software engineers team, bigger sales team, obviously. obviously. And then they have bigger marketing budgets, right? They're everywhere. So as a small team, the big challenge is finding ways to create something that will be very impactful, but will require less work, right? Because we don't have big, big teams and capacities of doing big, obviously, projects or advertising campaigns. So the biggest challenge is think big, but also how can you do small things that will create the biggest impact? It's the choice, right? Because you don't have the capacity in the team to do it. So you have to always choose. It's always about choosing, choosing, choosing every day. What to focus on, what to devote your time, and what to prioritize. And if you don't prioritize it, you can spend a lot of time doing wrong things that are not going to be as impactful. That's going to be unfortunate, right? If you're going to spend all your resources and all your talent and all your time on something that's not going to be impactful, that's a bad decision, in my opinion, right? So the challenge is making those good decisions. All you need to is make a few good decisions. You don't need to be right all the time, but you need to do a couple of good decisions. Completely agree. And it's, you know, you, you cannot also always, I mean, you make those decisions based on what you know at some point in time, and at least you make the decision, you try it out. If it fails, it fails. You iterate from there. And it's, at some point you get better. Have you got any yeah. framework or any way um, whereby you give people autonomy to do that themselves? Because at the end, you know, you now you're still a relatively small team, but yeah. at some point you will be larger and you want to keep that same mantra or that same vibe in the company. Yeah, no, this is a really great question. I think as CEOs and founders, we need to learn how people we hire. It's very challenging because there's a lot of times when you certain way, but if you hire somebody with expertise, you hire them for a reason and you need to trust them to do what they do the best. So never get the ego get in, in like in between things. Like I try to, and I learned to trust people around me and I learned it to do it with my co-founders. So. This was really the good dynamics because everyone has their own set of skills and we're all responsible for different parts, right? We all all have expertise. So when it comes to marketing, they trust me on the marketing side, right? Because I have the background in this and I make basically decisions when it comes to creating the most impactful campaign on zero budgets. They completely trust me. When it comes to the tech side, I trust completely my co-founder, Kevin, and I know that he makes the right decisions. And again, I have two co-founders. My, non- my other co-founder is non-technical. He makes decisions when it comes to a lot of finance and legal work, right? So learning how to trust your co-founders is easy when you find the right dynamics. But then I feel like the challenge is like, you need to learn how to trust people you hire, right? Because they will be building the team and your company is extension of yourselves, right? 
So when the company is, yep. is small, you can keep that extension and really extend yourself, bring that culture and extend your ethos, whatever you believe you can project on people. But then when you hire others, they hire, they create their own teams, right? You need to learn how to trust them. And I think in return, it would be great if they learn how you do things and what culture you're trying to create. If they share their same vision, they will extend you even further. That's what I believe. Yeah. So vision is really important again. Yeah, vision is important, but I think personal characteristics, they outrank yeah. everything else. We believe that sometimes it's not really about the background or education. It's really personal characteristics. And if we get along with the person we hire, if we get along with and they understand what we're trying to create. It really doesn't matter what the background is, to be honest, or what the education is. It's all about the personal traits. And I try to really put that a priority to find people with, you know, a personal characteristics that really align with what we believe. That's the very important thing. And it, I mean, this whole thing of the word belief counts both ways. It counts to our, it, it really plays a big role towards employees to create a team. And on the other end, it's also about finding those customers that also that believe what you believe or the other way around. Because that's yes. where the click is made. Absolutely. Yes. And that's why we're very grateful to have our power users because they see what we're doing and they share the same vision. They also don't want to do automations. They want to get in front of the buyers earlier. They want to show their personality. And it's interesting how they also think that, you know, what we're doing aligns with what they want to do and we're creating the world better for them. So world better for them will make us win. So it's not about, you know, uh, creating a world, you know, how would I say this? I'll try to frame it in my words. When you create a company that enables other people to become better at life or at their job, either you give them tools to enhance their talent or you make something accessible or you give expert capabilities to non-experts. That's what matters the most. That's what will keep people talking about your company. They will talk about, you know, the world that you are creating for them. They're not actually going to talk about the company and culture you're creating, but they will be talking about the world that your company created for them. Yeah, it's the transformation that they are uh, part of. And yes, the better world, yeah, the new situation that you are creating for them. And that's where, yeah, the gratefulness comes in from people. And that's where the talking starts. Yeah, I mean, I was almost about to kind of ask my question about what do you, yeah, being the CEO of this company and being involved in a couple of other companies. What do you believe is the secret to building a remarkable software business? But I think you cracked number one already there with your answer. (laughs) Is there anything else you believe is essential to create a remarkable software business? I mean, I think that's when you create something that enables other people to win, you win, right? Again, it's either, you know, you help them become better in whatever they do and whatever their job is. And if you help them do this, if you give them, you know, capabilities, if you give them access to something, our capabilities to people who don't have no expert capabilities. That's what will be remarkable. I think that it overlaps with my previous answer, I guess. Yeah, but true. This is what I truly believe. Yeah. Well, this is where the personal gain comes in, but yeah, definitely that mixes really well with the transformation and the better world that they want to be part of. Well, really good. Last question. From the lessons that you've learned now being a CEO of this company, what would be a do and possibly a don't that you could share with other CEOs out there in the market that aspire to do great things to build a remarkable software company like you're doing? 
So one do and one don't, right? Yeah, like the things that you like, if you would look back at the past couple of years that you would yeah. have liked to have known up front. <laughs> oh, okay. Start charging clients right away. <laughs> yeah. So that's the thing I would recommend. We were trying to figure out the monetization model with Briefbit for a long time. And if we would have started charging right away, we would figure out it easier and faster, I believe. I think it's the same thing with pure SaaS play. I know a lot of companies, they offer product for first year, for free, for first two years, but they're venture-backed startups. If you're not venture-backed startup and you're bootstrapping, obviously you want to try to charge customers right away for the value you're providing, but also you will have less revenue and less customers. But you also have, you'll, have, you'll have better insights because those, you'll have those right customers, exactly those who are willing to pay that premium. Right. And yep. then you can build up on that. Exactly. Yeah. Skin mm -hmm. in the game is a really important thing. And free is free. And the moment people pay for it, they use it. And they don't. Yeah. yeah. Don't disconnect from your customers. I feel like as CEOs, I feel we are. And again, I'm in the very early stages this year. And once I grow, I know I have more responsibilities, but I know that I will try my best to always be connected to my customers. So I suggest, I know it might be challenging, but if you can stay connected with them as much as you can, you can either collaborate on the content together or you can have regular conversations. I think it's so important to stay connected with your customers that use your product. I know it's a big challenge for CEOs because they have so many other responsibilities. I know that, but I feel like it's very crucial to stay connected because everything, it just evolves so quickly these days. And it's really important to be connected with your customers. I think it's back to priorities, you know, and at the end, yeah. the customers speak the truth and it shouldn't be yeah. the customers that are paying you the biggest bills. It should be the customers that challenge you most, I would say. Yes, absolutely. Customers right are reason. the answer. Yes, customers are the answer to everything. Yes, that's 100%. Yeah. So yeah, where can people go to find out more about Decklinks and to say hi to you? I'm available on LinkedIn. That's really the primary social channel that I use. If anyone wants to connect with me, they can just send me a request and say hi. And if they want to learn about Decklinks, it's super simple. It's decklinks.com. I was surprised that we even got this domain because it's really hard to get any domains these days. But yes, decklinks.com, it's that easy. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Lydia, for sharing the wisdom and for sharing the journey. I like your style. I mean, it's absolutely, now that I've been another hour with you in a call here, it's the hopeful, the optimistic, the creative, the relationship part really stands out for me as well. Good luck on the journey. I'll keep following you. I mean, I must say I haven't really used Decklinks to its extent where I should have been, but I'm going to definitely pick that up. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you for being a part of my journey from the beginning of Ducklings. It's a pleasure. And this ends my conversation with Lydia, and I hope you enjoyed it. And if so, please leave a review on iTunes. And if it inspired you, please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that you have in your network. Other than that, thank you for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Lydia Vega, CEO of Decklinks. As said, the goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Before I close, I have two more comments to make. 
if you know other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that have a story worth sharing, please send me an email at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas. And that starts with you. And if you want to know more about my book, or you're interested in joining the Remarkable Effect tribe, please visit my website at www.valueinspiration.com. Thanks for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast on iTunes or provide me with your feedback directly. I'll see you shortly on a new episode. The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.